1: This episode was sponsored by Fair Anita. Fair Anita offers fair trade products ethically sourced from 8,000 plus women in nine countries across the world. They're on a mission to create a world where women feel safe, valued, and respected no matter their geography. Their jewelry, clothing, bags, and more are always created in ethical working conditions. Fair Anita. Cute, ethical, affordable. This episode is also sponsored by our Patreon supporters. Janet Volk, Rachel Tiven, Katie Ull, Jennifer Jansen, Rachel Kay, Jessica Smith, Juniper, Tracy Steeb, Jan Elise Cannon, Jamie Lang, Jill Harrigan, Maria Carla Sanchez, Valerie Jacobson, Heather McKinnon, Chantelle Oliver, Caitlin McTaggart, Lindsay Cummings, and Tasmane Weir. Huge thanks to all our patrons. Hey, Katie, you know what somebody should do? What? Somebody should write a history of the world in sisters. Like a history of the whole world told through the stories of sisters. Wow. Yeah. What a lens to look at the history of the world through. That's brilliant. Hold on a second. Wait. Didn't we do that? Oh, wait. Yes, we did. (laughs) Good idea, us. It's called The Book of Sisters, and it has recently been released with a new Macmillan imprint called Neon Squid. Aimed at kids age eight to twelve, illustrated by a team of thirty five international illustrators. Available in English in the US, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, in Dutch in the Netherlands, and very soon a Spanish edition in Mexico, with possibly more countries and languages coming soon. Get your copy anywhere books are sold or on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Just click on shop. Katie. Hi, Olivia. I want you to close your eyes and imagine that you are in Berlin, Germany in the 1920s. Berlin 1920s. Okay. You are sitting in a movie theater. Okay. So we're thinking like silent films? Yes. Silent films. This is a big moment for German cinema. There's a lot of innovative new stuff going on. And a lot of slapstick comedy going on. Okay. So you're sitting in this theater, enjoying your Charlie Chaplin film. And as the film ends, and you're thinking about maybe grabbing a snack during the intermission between Mm -hmm. movies, a woman with short black hair in a plain black dress walks onto the stage in front of the screen and stands there. And stands there. (laughs) and stands there. Oh, cool. (laughs) And as the audience grows increasingly and then vocally uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. it is all she does. She stands there. Wow. And stands there. And after what feels like an eternity of her standing there, she leaves the stage And the next movie starts. (laughs) Cool. I automatically love her. I love eccentrics. And she is definitely that. Even for early Weimar Republic, or just before the Weimar Republic, which is famously a weird, weird art scene Mm. on every level, this... Is weird. <laughs> this weird woman performing what she called pause, which she said was a reflection on inactivity, silence, serenity, and stillness amid all the movement and chaos of modern life, was a dancer named Valeska Gert. She would go on to become one of the most pioneering dancers in Western history and is largely credited now as the mother of the punk movement 50 years later. Okay. (laughs) Yep. The 1970s punk movement. I was not expecting that. This woman's life is a wild, wild ride. So buckle up. It's going to get weird. I'm Olivia Mickle, And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. I had never heard of Aleska Garrett. Nope, me neither. Until last year, when I went on this Lost Women of England tour with this podcast called What's-Her-Name. Oh, hey, yeah. Oh, that yeah, was a you good tour. <laughs> one of the people who came on that What's-Her-Name tour was Janet Collard. Yay! Utterly delightful. And on the bus one day, she told me a little bit about her work on this amazing and bizarre dancer named Valeska Gert, who I fell in love with immediately, just like you just did. Mm-hmm. And the more I find out about her, the harder I fall. (laughs) This woman's life is bananas and amazing Yay! and my absolute favorite. And conveniently, Janet Collard has spent over a decade working on Valeska (laughs) Gert. So she has a lot of great stuff to share
2: with us. Well, that's handy. My name is Janet Collard. I have been a dancer and choreographer, performer for many, many years. and I'm currently enrolled at Roehampton University doing a postgraduate program in dance, philosophy and history. My history with Valeska Gert began in 2005 at Mills College when I learned of her while reading one of our assigned books by Ramsey Burt called Alien Bodies, Representations of Modernity, Race and Nation in Early Modern Dance. And this book had an image on the cover and it was Valeska Gert. It was a very striking image and um, a person, a performer, a dancer that I did not recognize. So that kind of piqued my interest. Um, She's wearing a dress and shoes that you could buy in a shop meaning it wasn't like a dance costume, you know, it wasn't designed for that necessarily. Her hair is tousled, her stockings are rolled down to her ankles. She's standing in a plie first position. So a dancer plie where your, your heels are together, your toes are turned out and you're bending your knees, and has this strange coquettish look on her face. The image was of Valeska performing her prostitute dance, Canalia. The image, her clothes, her shape, was so different, and I was intrigued and wanted to learn more. That proved to be a decade-long journey into discovering all I could about Valeska Gert.
1: And turned that fascination into a really incredible work of her own, a one-woman dance show called Performing Valeska. Huh. And Janet Collard has very kindly allowed me to use clips from that performance in this episode. So throughout the episode, when you hear Valeska Geert speaking about her life or her work, that's actually Janet Collard embodying Valeska Gert. Cool. <laughs>
2: Built, come into my world. I am Gertrude Valesca-Salmon. I live here in Berlin in Weimar Cabaret. And I have no interest in academics or office work. I am not.
1: There are some characters in history who seem to kind of spring out of nowhere. They had totally nondescript normal childhoods, and nobody could have predicted what they would become, and they just suddenly explode out of normality into greatness. Mm -hmm. Valeska Gert is not one of those people. (laughs) (laughs) From the moment she was born,
2: Valeska was Valeska. Valeska Gert was born in Berlin in 1892. She was not a studious student. She thought school was ridiculous and in one instance, while sitting at her desk in geography class, ah, school so boring. So I wriggled my way out of my skirts and sat perfectly contented in my underwear, waiting for my turn at the blackboard. <gasps> School and never looked back. <laughs> Fortunately for her, her mother recognized that she needed some extracurricular activities and outlets. So she enrolled her in acting classes and dancing classes. The type of dancing she was doing was pantomime. It was quite refined. And I think that was a bit tame for her. But in her very first live performance, which was in 1916, they were going to do a recital. Instead of doing the dance that she had practiced and rehearsed for her teacher. Instead, when she got onto the stage, she crashed in like a bomb and started Stomping around, jumping around wild with wild abandon, making crazy faces and sounds and taking the pantomime movements and gestures that she was doing and greatly exaggerating them. And the audience kind of lost it and were clapping and laughing and hooping and hollering and also booing.
1: <laughs> I think most kids would be mortified by this, getting booed off the stage at your first <laughs> performance. I, I think I personally would have never recovered from this. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Valeska had a different response. She loved it all of it she was fine with whatever she was receiving from the audience so she had definitely found her place i think she really liked you know she created a ruckus and she really liked to push the envelope in that regard that was that's a huge part of her aesthetic
1: she got exactly what she wanted out of that experience wow and she liked making people angry and uncomfortable. And she would continue to create a ruckus <laughs> and love every single second of it for the rest of her life. <laughs> and in many ways, she had really excellent timing being born when she did. <laughs> She's coming of age in
2: the Weimar Republic. After World War One. So post-war, and the complete collapse of the German economy, the Reichmark, was worthless. And the German economy wasn't being supported by the rest of Europe. That is when cabaret culture really exploded and Berlin became, Berlin and Paris They were a little bit different. I would say Berlin is much more the seedy side, the darker side, dirtier side. The things you couldn't do in London or Paris, I'm not sure there wasn't a lot you couldn't do in Paris, but uh, a lot of things happening underground, but also above ground that everybody was just okay with. I think she was in the right place at the right time, definitely for, for her brand of performance during this era.
1: So many times in world history, the hard times are the creative times, philosophically and artistically. Yeah, when everything is falling apart around you, it's much easier to question everything. Yeah. And you go, why are we here? What do I want to do with my life? Yeah, if if you're going to go hungry, you might as well do stuff yeah. you love. <laughs>
2: a name for herself by doing these Expressionist theatrical dance solos. And they were based on things happening around her and all the changes going on. So she was taking the vibe of Berlin. So she has a dance called Traffic, where she dances traffic. So this is very expressionist, right? So she dances all of the parts, let's say, in a traffic scene in Berlin, a street scene in Berlin. She dances the traffic cop. She dances the drivers in the cars. You know, she dances the pedestrians. She dances electricity, because electricity is still Fairly new at this point, or the amount of it was quite new with all of the signs lit up everywhere. Wow. She, one of her most famous
1: pieces is called The Prostitute. She is staging these very unusual subjects and these very (sighs) unheard of characters to be performing in a dance piece.
2: So she found uh, a place in this time period with her very kind of wild avant-garde dance solos. And she would perform these in cabaret clubs. So if anyone's seen Cabaret the Musical,
1: that's where we are here. This wild avant-garde chaotic art scene. And she's dancing in cabarets and in theaters, but also... As we mentioned, in movie theaters, ah. anywhere where she can get people to watch her, she's performing. And I think this really speaks to her goals, too, because doing a piece like Pause, that is just silently standing on a stage in an avant-garde theater where the audience has come expecting to see something unusual and weird. That's one thing. Yeah but inserting yourself into a movie theater between Charlie Mm -hmm. Chaplin films (laughs) is entirely different. She wants a specific reaction. She wants her audience to be confused and upset and even furious. And she's chasing that childhood, getting booed off the stage high her entire life. That's so interesting. I mean, I've just finished teaching a class on the meaning of life in the modern west so i can't not connect her to the dada movement and the absurdist movement right after world war one that she seems to be she's just like the physical manifestation of the dada movement just trying to throw people off kilter just trying to like shift your perspective and make you rethink what is life about and what are we doing here yeah, she's definitely, there's a lot of Dadaism in her stuff. There's a lot of epic theater. Bertolt Brecht's epic theater is becoming a major force in Germany at this point. And Bertolt Brecht adored Valeska Gert.
2: He really liked her style. He really liked her style of performance. He called her performance epic theater. He said, I want to do what you're doing. It's epic theater. That's a quote. But she, however, (laughs) she made fun of him in in an interview, just saying how he was like, I don't know, so into his thing, so into epic theater. And she's like, what is this thing? Epic theater. I don't know. I just go out there and do my thing. I don't know why you're making such a big deal out of it.
1: (laughs) And I don't know if that was irritation that he seems to be kind of trying to co-opt her her innovation and stick it in his box, or just that she doesn't want to be in any box. She is, absolutely refuses to be
2: categorized. Yeah. She is doing <laughs> her stuff. Maybe there is a tinge of jealousy there, too. I don't know. But she is quoted as saying that she preferred Shakespeare <laughs> to epic theater. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a sick
1: burn, right? At this point... Yeah. What's the worst thing you could say
0: to a mm-hmm. progressive
1: playwright who's trying to change everything than tell yeah. him you prefer 400-year-old work? <laughs> it's just mean. <laughs> but these kinds of performances that she's doing, especially this just standing on a stage, won't happen again. It, it, it won't become a thing in dance for 40 years When postmodernism sort of starts happening in the 60s and these performance of dancers just walking across the stage or standing on a stage start happening and being recognized as these, you know, really thought provoking pieces of art. She's not just ahead of her time. She's four decades Mm -hmm. ahead of her time. And so she's mostly just making people really angry with what she's (laughs) doing which is exactly what she wants. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Fair Anita, an online boutique investing in women around the world. Fair Anita offers fair trade products ethically sourced from 8,000 plus women in nine countries across the world. Their products are always made in ethical working conditions where female artisan partners are paid two to three times minimum wage. Almost everything is made from recycled materials with an offset carbon footprint, handmade, locally sourced, and beautiful. I am literally wearing my scarf right now. Hand woven, hand dyed in Vietnam. Wow! I cannot believe it. It's gorgeous. Thank you. And I know you love a scarf. I don't think I'm going to take it off. What'd you get? I got this amazing bag made from recycled mosquito netting. It's so cool. It looks amazing. And the quality on everything, the materials, the sewing, obviously, it's going to last forever. Wow. And most of their products are under $20. Completely affordable. I was surprised. Just for our listeners, use the coupon code HERNAME, all one word and all caps, and get 10% off any order. Farinita. Cute. Ethical.
0: Affordable.
1: I think the other thing that's really important to understand, looking backwards at this work, is some of these pieces, when you hear about them, sound like they're one thing. She once danced an orgasm, for example. (laughs) That one got her arrested a couple of times. (laughs) And I think we hear that, or we hear that she's dancing a piece called The Prostitute, and we're picturing something very sensual, something that was too sexy for the stage and
2: got her hauled off to jail. And it's not that at all. She would embody these characters completely, 100% put herself into it. But she was not interested in enticing necessarily, being sensual necessarily, she was she was much more interested in being provocative and making people uncomfortable. And she's very well quoted for saying how much she disliked the bourgeois class. Maybe that has a little bit to do with how she was one and, and then she wasn't, but I think she very much saw herself as not that. And she really wanted to show the bourgeois class real Berlin. She, um, you know, really relished in that sort of shock factor. And it wasn't always the same. She was really into improvising. So from one performance to the next of the same solo, it would be different. One night, her prostitute would be completely in control of her situation and really into what she was doing. And another night, she might be just drunk and pissed off and, you know, not treated well by the johns. And the other part of that dance is she would often fake having an orgasm in performance. And at least one of such times, the police were called on her for indecency. (laughs) She had a flagrant disregard for law. (laughs) So this time period really suited her.
1: How did Janet Collard reproduce these? Like in the era before video, does she is she going on descriptions of what she did? Yeah, this is a a mammoth effort to me. It's mind-boggling how she managed to
2: do this. Based off of very little very little research. I mean little as far as there are there's no footage of these dances except for that little tiny snippet of canalia. And another little tiny snippet of another dance called Kuplerin, or the matchmaker. There's a lot of photographs. And she's so animated that you can get a lot from the photographs. So in that regard, you know, there there was a fair amount to go off of. And then there are some really nice, great descriptions of her work. I chose certain ones that I could find the most information on and the ones that I I was most drawn to. I spent a lot of time in the studio working on these dances and trying to put together from the words and the pictures what I thought it might look like. And again, she improvised greatly so it wasn't like that that's also part of her charm but also part of why she's kind of flickers in and out of the timeline
1: Valeska Gert was not a big one you might guess for record keeping or <laughs> organizing yeah. herself or writing down in dance well, notation sure. especially the specifics of any yeah, given piece it's different every time Then, huh. yeah Interesting. So Janet Collard had to kind of... Like channel the spirit of her... Yes. Yeah. What might this have looked like? And look at these photographs. I mean, that's like dance archaeology. Yeah, it really is. And we'll have a link on our website to the video of this performance, which is amazing. And I I highly recommend people watch it. It's absolutely (laughs) incredible. But also, 12 hours ago, Janet Collard discovered a little snippet of film that she had not known existed of one of Valeska Garrett's most famous dances, which was called "Dancing Orange. So Dancing oh. Orange. A little short silent movie clip of her performing this. And it is astoundingly identical to the way that Jenna Collard ah. interpreted this dance <laughs> in the piece. I mean, it is. She was channeling something oh, here awesome. because it's it's quite amazing how exact it is and it is not something that i think any regular dancer on earth would have intuited <laughs> would be the way this piece would look it is odd it is great but it is odd <laughs> and she was famous for her weird what they called like a rubber band facial expressions she her facial expressions were key to all of her dance pieces and they were bizarre the most bizarre strange faces that she could pull these upsetting and confusing facial expressions as part of the performance Mm -hmm.
2: in addition to her dances she did theater and she also did films she did quite a lot of films and she was in the three penny opera the film uh, as Mrs. Peacham Interesting. You can watch it on YouTube. It's fascinating. Yeah. She did some work with the Vatican's um, and she did some Shakespeare. We know that she played Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream. She's making a name for herself. She's performing all over Europe.
1: She's in Zurich, she's in Paris, she's in London, she's in Russia. The Russians love her, actually, which is really fascinating. Hmm. But, of course, it's Germany in the 1930s, and we all know where this Mm -hmm. is going. Of course, right, this, a lot of this extreme freedom, sexual freedom, artistic freedom, questioning all of the rules, pushing all of the boundaries of what has been accepted society, is one of the things that the Nazi party uses... Hitler is campaigning loudly on a platform of countering all of this freedom, this sexual freedom, this weird art. Mm, And we mm -hmm. should embrace the traditional, of course, in quotes. Yeah. And and basically put everyone back in the boxes where they belong. Mm -hmm. And after he's elected, things start to shift pretty quickly in Berlin. One thing we know is that fascism always comes hand in hand with misogyny. And it's no different here. Women are quickly pushed out of jobs, out of the public sphere, Mm -hmm. strongly, strongly encouraged to just stay home and make babies for the fatherland. And alongside this comes a pretty severe crackdown on art, on deciding what kinds of art, music, theater
2: are acceptable and what kinds are dangerous closing down more and more spaces unless they were like Nazi approved, which there are a fair amount of artists that did go to be a part of the Nazi government because they actually provided tons of funding for artists. Just want to support you. We want to support artists. We want to support German artists. That's what they were saying. Goebbels begins his
1: list of degenerate artists that need to be purged Cabaret culture, of course, in general is high on that list with its gender creativity and political satire yeah. and pushing the envelope all kinds of ways. But Valeska Gert could not conform to patriotic standards of art if she had tried. <laughs> and she's unlikely to try. Right. But there's another big issue for her Valeska Gert is Jewish.
2: Theatres were starting to have signs saying, you know, no Jews could perform here. So she was getting squeezed out of her career, which was her life. Performing was her life. She was upset by it, annoyed by it, frustrated by it, angered by it. But she also didn't give a you know what. There's a famous story of her sitting with her then husband at a restaurant some Nazi officers come in and this was common for them to like go around and check people's like identifications and and her husband started panicking and saying that they should leave right now and and she was like I don't care I really don't care what they do I don't care And I think that was true. I mean, I think if her life eventually wasn't in danger, maybe she would have stayed. It wasn't good for her anymore. And most importantly, she couldn't perform. She couldn't do her thing, um, which was everything to her. And so she finally flees to London. Thank goodness. There was a producer there who was really into her her work and tried to make things happen for her. And she ended up marrying him, although he was he was openly gay.
1: But you know, I'm our republic, baby. Or marriage of convenience so she can stay in the country, maybe. Either way. She's starting to perform again, he's creating events for her. But something is wrong.
2: She describes moments of complete panic. She would freeze up. Because there was so much trauma I can imagine that she was experiencing and had experienced by the Nazis taking over and her having to leave and everything being completely uprooted.
1: So she's she's out of Germany. She's in London, but the Nazis are still right there and starting to expand and maybe they still feel too close. And one day someone offers her a ticket to America and she grabs at
2: the chance. And she then wrote to her husband and her lover, she says, uh, as she was on the boat heading to America. She is
1: out of here. She arrives in the U.S. and goes to Hollywood. She's trying to get back into film.
2: Yeah. I wow. mean, Where else would you go? Mm. She was not well received <laughs> in Hollywood. And she also loathed everyone she met that had anything to do with Hollywood. She loathed them. She despised the industry. She despised the people.
1: She's not what's happening. We're we're not doing weird experimental films at this point in Hollywood. And then we enter kind of a blank spot in her history here. Now, hopefully, Janet Collard will be able to find more about her in her ongoing research. We know that she lived for a while in a Jewish refugee community in California. She worked as an artist model for a while, but she's really struggling. She's lost everything. And she kind of disappears from the
0: story for a while.
2: But, you know, being sort of the very motivated, artistic, through of caution of the wall kind of person, she kept trying to make things happen. I mean, she just, that she, it was just part of her survival, I think.
1: And eventually she resurfaces in New York where she opens a cabaret club. Hmm. Now, she's run a few of these in Berlin before the war. She knows how to do it. And it's very popular. Her club is branding itself as a real experience of a Weimar Republic club cabaret here in the United States, which would have been a very appealing combination of both exotic, Mm. exciting, and slumming it. She's booking all the talent. She's performing herself. She's finding all of her people. This brings all of her people to her. And she starts to build some good friendships and relationships. But there are a few problems. Like, she didn't actually get a liquor license. So they're consistently raided and shut down from time to time. Maybe that's also part of the appeal. Ah the place, right? It's the Weimar Republic and some Nostalgia Prohibition vibes. vibes. Okay, (laughs) Or it's oppositional defiance disorder. I've got her diagnosed me. (laughs) You're not going to tell me what I can do. (laughs) Whatever the reason, it's very popular and celebrities like Judy Garland and Vincent Minnelli are often seen Hmm. there.
2: But it didn't last for whatever reason. She was not good with (laughs) <laughs> logistics.
1: She was great at the artistic side. The shows were incredible. It was the perfect vibe. She wasn't great at the business side, <laughs> which is not super surprising. Mm-hmm. And eventually, it shut down. At that point, Valeska Garrett, never one to do anything anyone expects of her, moves to Provincetown, Massachusetts. Okay. She pops in and out of the timeline a bit here. But she eventually launches another, like, eccentric German cabaret in
2: Provincetown. But what we do know about Provincetown is that it was a little touristy, kind of touristy town. So I think there was that kind of a crowd. So there was some audience, and she had some really unique acts that would come through there. And,
1: in fact... One of her favorite employees was Tennessee Williams. Oh. <laughs> Tennessee Williams, okay. famed American playwright, was a busboy uh, in Valeska Gertz, Massachusetts okay. cabaret. And they were very good friends. They really, really got along well, even though she fired him for refusing to share his tips. <laughs> <laughs> Just a weird crossover moment in history. But this is kind of who she is. She reminds me in many ways of of Alma Mahler. Doing a similar thing in New yeah. York, right? Finding innovative new artists. Mm-hmm. Recognizing talent when she sees it. Recognizing especially talent doing weird stuff mm. that nobody else likes. Mm. And it really encourages these oddballs to do their
2: art eventually she came back to Germany and she went back to Berlin post-war and founded a completely different place of course
1: She starts trying to do her thing again, but nobody remembers her. Nobody knows who
2: she is. I think it was heartbreaking. Yeah, I think it was really rough for her. She did open some more clubs, kind of on and off. They, They kind of show up in some of these books and articles. Um, And then they close, and then they open, and they close. And for a couple of decades, she's kind of
1: living on the fringe of this scene. And then, in the 1970s, she befriends the punks. Wow. This is the earliest days of the punk movement. Especially punk music, punk art is all about making people uncomfortable, <laughs> right? And not being pretty, right? You don't want to play your instruments well. Mm-hmm. You want to play your instruments poorly. You want to sing in a mm-hmm. way that is unappealing and you wanna, not technically yeah, proficient. Make some noise. Break mm-hmm. all the rules and do everything wrong. Even or especially, yeah, if it makes people angry. So I can see why she's perfect. Yeah, if you're not making people people angry, you're not doing punk. Let's imagine, it's it's fun to imagine being like a youthful part of the punk movement in Berlin and you're like, you find this little old lady who gets it. That would be awesome. (laughs) Yeah, running a weird little cabaret that becomes the punk hangout. And she loved them. She thought that they were great, but they also loved Mm -hmm. her. They loved her dance. They loved her work. They loved her philosophy of art. So she's supporting, empowering them, but they're validating her art. Finally. Yeah. Finally. 50 years (laughs) later. That's great. Society has caught up to Uh her. And there are... Some people and some cool young people who get what she was trying to do.
2: And she becomes known as the mother of punk. Which really makes sense to me. If the term punk had existed in the way that it did then, when she was doing her thing in the 20s, she would have been punk. These are her people. Grotesque was her genre. And in fact, grotesque taunts, you know, grotesque dance was her genre for the most part was invented by her. She starts
1: doing films again at this point in the 70s, late in her life. She is sort of brought back in. She is she's working with Fellini and other prominent directors. (laughs) And she's starting to be seen. I I really think like society kind of caught up with her. And in this postmodern punk era, the things that just made people not want to be around her make her mm-hmm. fascinating. She eventually retired to the island of Silt. It's a tiny island off the coast of Denmark that belongs to Germany. <laughs> and Valeska Gert retires there to a little cottage which she decorates very much like a 1930s cabaret,
2: and lives alone on this tiny wow. island. She was in a film directed by Volker Schlondorf. She was she was quite old at this time. I think she was in her 70s. You know, off camera, she would be sitting there talking with the other actors and telling them about her life. And nobody could believe it. Nobody could believe that this was true and real
1: and the director started listening to what she was saying and realized this is a movie ah. so when the film was finished he made a documentary of her ah. and he went out to her cottage on the island of silt and just talked to
2: her about Thank her goodness. life i got access to that documentary from the deutsche film institute um a, a few years ago And um, it's got subtitles in English. So I was able to understand everything that they were saying. This documentary is just kind of her lounging on her bed or her couch talking about her life. And it is like a goldmine for somebody researching her because it's her describing her own life. And she gives like many performances in this documentary film. And they're just incredible. She was doing a lot of sound work, like vocal sound work at this time. And she would vocalize like death. it's, It's kind of cathartic. She could throw her voice as well. And she did a piece called Baby. And she sounds like a crying baby. It is so strange
1: weird stuff she's she's still being very weird Mm. all the way to the end and just delightful learning new skills to make people uncomfortable wow and living alone in this little cottage on the island of silt in one of her autobiographies she predicted her own death
2: was she right She says she will probably die alone with nothing but the cats to eat at her corpse.
1: (gasps) No, was she right? And that's what happened.
2: She was right. (sighs)
1: She she predicted this, Uh. but she still got cats. Yeah. So she must have been okay with that being her fate. Kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe her final best act was a death that makes everyone who hears about it wildly uncomfortable and unsettled. And if that's Uh. not the best epilogue to the life mission of Valeska Gert, she did it. She went out in a way that would make people as uncomfortable as possible
2: how can someone this pioneering in in the world of performance that i am in how can i not know about her and how does no one else know about her (laughs)
1: thanks to people like Janet Collard. Her name is starting to come back out again. And I hope she'd be thrilled to be remembered in this way. Mm. Especially, I think, with Janet's work literally re-embodying her. Yeah, that's so cool. And I hope that she will come back around again and become the kind of household name at least in dance circles. Yeah. Right? There's not a lot of dancers that are household names for most of us, mm. but she shook the box in a way that allowed a lot of other things to happen. And she really does deserve the attention <laughs> that she so wanted. And so I hope we can get her back in the public sphere. Even if people hate it, <laughs> boo her off the stage again. She deserves it. In the words of Volker Schlondorf, the filmmaker who created the documentary about her life, she wasn't a monument. She was once a star, and even more, a constant scandal. thanks to janet collard visit our website at what's to see pictures and video of valeska Gert, as well as a link to the video of janet's performance of performing valeska music for this episode was provided by audionautics aaron Kenny, and with selections from performing valeska by janet collard featuring music by jelly roll morton clara schumann the corona dance orchestra claire waldorf and taryn olson you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. If you've enjoyed this episode, we would be so grateful if you would leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It's one of the most important ways for new listeners to find us. Our interns are Olivia Foley and Katie Boucher. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle.